Welcome to Alternative Perspectives, a podcast by the Center for Applied Law and Technology Research by the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy. Today we're going to talk about this book I read recently. It's called Midnight's Machines: A Political History of Technology in India. It was written by Arun Mohan Sukumar, and we have Arun with us here today. This book chronicles um, India's changing attitude to technology, both of the Indian public and Indian politicians. and how these attitudes of the public and the politicians have interacted with each other it also talks about the dissonance in these attitudes that has happened at many points it talks about india's relationship to the rest of the world and how that has affected its adoption of technology it talks about a uh, small technology involving bullet carts but also big technology involving space nuclear energy and of course information technology what i really like about this book is that it's readable it's um, it has many interesting stories that you won't find anywhere else but also lays out the broad trends that have happened in india's twist with technology hi arun thanks a lot for joining us today thanks for having me there so while you were writing this book apparently you were up to a bunch of other things as well so obvious question i suppose um apart from the fact that such a book has surprisingly not been written yet why did you decide to write this i think part of the motivation for writing the book was i had been at orf the think tank in delhi for at that point i think 3 to 4 years and most of my engagement with the space if you will has been on technology policy so a number of issues um had cropped up in in this space for perhaps the first time during this period between you know i'm talking about the period between 2014-15 to you know you could describe the, the present time and we were um you know encountered by these issues such as net neutrality uh, encryption and so on and so forth issues that came up for the first time um and to which positions were quickly adopted and you know i, I felt non reflexively hardened and i wanted to perhaps study in context how um indian society for lack of a better word engaged with debates on technology when they encountered them for the first time and this would mean that i expanded my analysis to issues that were way beyond the realm of digital technologies but uh, i figured that some of this has to be historical the way in which different constituencies in society responded to changes in technology this had to have happened in the past and it, and it did and so that was really the motivation for uh, understanding how politics in particular interacts with technology and creates certain sort of ripple effects in different like as a different constituencies in society and i when i began writing the book i think one of the assumptions that i had was india being this sort of you know consociational setup where different different uh, elements of society exert pressure on their political representatives and you know extract uh, concessions from the executive or the uh legislature if you will and they sort of they, they are they create the pushes and pulls that are involved in technology policy and what i found uh, i mean this is of course my interpretation of policy making in india and debates on technology in india that as with any uh, you know modern society the elites in india have exerted 
considerable sort of influence, uh, undue influence over how India has absorbed technologies. Uh, but I'm not sure whether these, uh, you know, the elite positions are necessarily a reflection of um, what society demanded or was in need of at any particular point of time. So that 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 to me seemed like an aha moment while I was writing the book. And the book's argument, as you know, is that um, a lot of it has to do with the political pressures uh, or the political context into which India was born. And our initial thinking of technology was shaped by factors that had very little to do with our economic conditions um, and a lot to do with our political and even cultural conditions at that time. As a result of which, uh, elite thinking about technology began to be shaped in a very rather curious or unique way, and which has continued to dominate our thinking towards new technologies, including digital technologies. So uh, it started out at uh, you know with with one purpose, and I must say it ended in a totally different directions. But I thought this is one interpretation that would perhaps be received with interest with at least people who are interested about uh, who are who are sort of involved in the day to day business of thinking about what technologies India should embrace and what policies should be in place to regulate or welcome them. Right. Uh, yeah. So you did talk about societal needs and um, how our policies probably did not reflect them. A big part of what you were talking about was the lack of focus on items for consumer use. So just, you know, consumer electronics, for instance. How do you assess today's India where access to consumer electronics is perhaps quite a lot easier than before. And it is the defining nature of the individual's interaction with technology in India today. And whether you think that has adequately delivered the economic uh, and other benefits that it should have? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I Look, I, I don't think I, I, I would like to believe that I'm not naive enough to believe that uh, you know, greater access to technology by greater numbers of the Indian population will necessarily result in a democratization of tech policy making as well. I don't think that will happen. But the fact is that the circumstances, like I said, the circumstances that dominated our thinking on how technology should be regulated in, say, 1947, in the early 50s, certainly are uh, no longer exist. Today, on account of the fact that, as you said, uh, you know, many Indians, most Indians have a relatively affordable access to consumer electronics because the quality and the, and the nature of those electronics differ from uh, different, you know, is on a spectrum. Uh, but the fact that um, many Indians today have access to these consumer electronics certainly has shaped uh, in a modest way, India's thinking towards technology as well. I think we are more positive and receptive of technology as a society than we were, um, uh, you know, at a certain point in the past. I'm not sure whether that is going to change this technology skepticism that I note has sort of dictated our approach to new technologies at various points of time in our uh, history as an independent country. And that may be because this elite perception of technology is still sort of oriented towards cynicism. It's difficult to pinpoint why that elite uh, skepticism is. Um, in, in the book, I argue, it has to do with the fact that you know, some of it is this, certainly this Nehruvian strand of thinking where uh, the elite has taken on this view of patronage of, you know, we are in a good position to determine what technologies are good and what technologies are bad for India. So I say it is a Nehruvian standard thinking because um, in the 50s and 60s, 
you had this debate about uh, appropriate technology, about technology that is labor intensive and not necessarily resource intensive. Uh, some of it, I argue, was dictated by political fa uh, factors, calculations because of India's uh, relatively low forex reserves, which limited the import of um, expensive equipment. Uh, the fact that Nehru and the political class in India were essentially uh, heirs to Gandhi's political legacy. And Gandhi, as you know, had a very sort of cynical view towards uh, machinery. So a, a lot of factors came together to create a cynical view on behalf of the elites towards technology, which I believe is quite strong in India today as well. So this is not something that was uh, isolated to the 50s and 60s, continued in the 70s, 80s, as India began to slowly embrace computers um, um, and um, IT uh, outsourcing, you know, the companies that sort of provided employment to hundreds of thousands of Indians for the last three decades. These were met with skepticism and cynicism in their early years and met with cynicism by elites. Um, and I am not sure whether that cynicism was a reflection of any cost-benefit calculations that were made on behalf of Indian elites. For example, uh, I used the highlight the report of the Committee on Automation that was set up in 1972, just as India began embracing computers, uh, especially in public sector units. Uh, the Dantikar Committee, which was set up in 1972 to examine the effect of automation on uh, labor in India. The report itself says that it cannot, could not find any discernible impact uh, on um, uh, payroll uh, as a result of computers being introduced in uh, the workforce. In fact, the report even went on to say that there could possibly be net gains. People, uh, it acknowledged that some people would lose jobs, but on account of the jobs that were needed to train people and to use computers effectively in the workplace, the, the report even said that there could be a net gain uh, for uh, the for Indian labor as a whole. But at the end of the day, the report was received and adopted in a political context in the in the context that is of. Uh, um, uh, trade union protests um, in the 70s in Bombay and other cities. So uh, the political calculations of the government at the time influenced the decision to adopt or to reject, in that case, reject the introduction of computers um, in, into the workplace. And uh, uh, and this this thinking of, or, or rather this approach that is largely cynical towards new technologies continued even as we sort of saw the green shoots of an Infosys or a TCS first time in the 80s and subsequently. Uh, you had, if you look at the newspapers of the time, there is a lot of skepticism on behalf of uh, the commentariat, if you will, uh, towards these new companies being, you know, cyber coolies or body shoppers. These pejorative terms are, you know, they've begun to apply these pejorative terms to companies that would go on, like I said, to provide employment to a large number of Indians. Um, I'm not debating the terms of those employment or whether Indians, uh, you know, whether ordinary Indians were uh, receiving a fair bargain by participating in such um knowledge production or technology production. I'm merely saying that the skepticism of elites uh, at the beginning stages of these, you know, introduction of these technologies seems to have been uh, dictated by some kind of innate skepticism, which I found difficult to understand, except through a political lens. Right. Yeah. And I suppose that um, even questions like whether automation would result in job loss or whether just the introduction of simple computers would result in job loss would uh, depend a lot also not merely on the introduction of the technology itself, but also on several policy choices made 
in the background of the introduction of technology. So yes. um, it, it would be obviously uh, really strange of us today if we are having this conversation based on uh, consumer technology to, you know, uh, having this online on a, on a, on an app to patronize yeah. opinions on consumer access to technology. Uh, but speaking of external factors that have dictated India's approach to uh, technology, you've written in the book a lot about uh, technology in the context of the Cold War. Do you today see some parallels between, given the relationships, the increasingly rigid relationship between the US and China? Yes, absolutely. I think we... Uh, we uh like various points in history uh, since our independence, I think we uh, stand to be affected by this so-called tech cold war between the US and China. But just by way of background for your listeners, I think the two points in history that I document where external conditions had played an important role in India's adoption or rejection of technologies in 1945 and 19, uh, well, in the, the late 80s, and the early 90s, just as the cold war um, uh, sort of had begun to draw down in uh, the you know around about the time of independence india was con- confronted with the reality that export control regimes were popping up uh, just as the world war had ended to prevent the you know quote unquote proliferation of sensitive technologies to either satellites of either the united states or the soviet union and india was caught in the crosshairs of many of these export control regimes also uh, another important factor that needed to be considered was India was owed a lot of money by Britain on account of being a contributor to war efforts. But uh, because of the conversion of sterling debts to dollar pretty much overnight on account of a secret agreement between the US and the UK, you know, our capacity to access technologies or to use these uh, debts that were owed to us to the purchase of technology was severely limited. So uh, that was one point in history where external conditions played a pretty consequential role. Even if we did want to buy new technologies that time, we were limited um, by what we could. And then, of course, uh, towards the end of um, the the Cold War, a similar sort of environment persisted where uh, the US, the ultimate victor of the Cold War, wanted to create a number of non-proliferation or further strengthen existing non-proliferation regimes to prevent um, sensitive dual-use technologies uh, from landing in the hands of um, a number of countries that had attained independence. The third wave of decolonization was happening pretty much at the same time. Uh, so, you know, these states that were released into the international community at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. wanted to prevent those technologies from reaching, uh, uh, you know, the hands of dictators or rogue governments. And India, once again, was caught in the crosshairs of those um, uh, non-proliferation regimes. And I also document in the book the access to uh, the, the negotiations that led to India's acquisition of a supercomputer and how the United States pretty much blocked the purchase of the supercomputer that we wanted from Japan and then negotiated our access to a supercomputer of a previous generation and not the one that we wanted uh, on account of these, you know, uh, sort of standing on the on the shoulders of these non-proliferation agreements. To your question, uh, do you think, uh, you know, whether, do I think whether the, the relationship between the US and China will affect us? Yes, absolutely. For example, one thing that we are concerned about today is the integrity of technology supply chains. A lot of it has to do with China's certainly. Um, so in pretty much any 
international forum that we are negotiating on cyber issues today, we raise supply chain integrity as something of paramount concern because we are worried about what China puts in these uh, technology supply chains and whether you know our strategic assets or even civilian assets are compromised by uh, malware um, or tools of surveillance that China embeds in technology supply chains. We are worried whether the prevailing environment of antagonism between the United States and China will limit once again our access to capital. Because I would imagine that the startup ecosystem in India would want access to capital from both the United States and China. And that may be prevented if um, there is a tightening of screws in Washington, D.C. that dictates what Chinese capital can or cannot do. So we stand to be affected, I think, once again, by the current state of relations between the two major powers in the world. Yeah, related to that, you've um, talked about how our uh, the IT industry that we know today rose on the back of Y2K and a bunch of Indian uh, workers, engineers, uh, fixing yeah. the bugs that uh, the Y2K crisis threw up. That's that's how we ended up finding our place in the global value chain of technology. And whether that was fair or not, that was the place we found. What what do you think? strategically should be the place we look for in the future in technology value chains. I mean, is it really fair for us, like you said, to sort of pick a side in this Cold War or even if even outside the context of this Cold War, what is it that India should be aiming for? Yeah, I think the challenge for us, which is you know hardly a new revelation, is uh, the difficulty in moving up the technology value chain, as you phrased it. I think we started out providing services to the lower on the lower end of the uh, value chain, but you know it's easy to point this out with the benefit of uh, hindsight. Uh, the fact is that at that time and even today, most essential infrastructure. Leave alone essential infrastructure, even private sector infrastructure that runs on the internet is built on, frankly, obsolete code. So what India did in the 80s and 90s leading up to the new millennium was to fix problems in that uh, well code that was increasingly getting obsolete. So you could say now that this is marginal innovation or this is providing innovation at the lower end of the value chain. But at that time, we were responding to a real need in uh, fixing certain aspects of you know, code-based aspects of digital infrastructure. And uh, Y2K, I think one of the big revelations for me after having written the book and knowing you know, uh, being acutely aware of what Y2K was. So maybe this is something that was, you know, uh, familiar to me on account of working in this space. But the number of people who have since approached me after reading the book and saying, look, we knew nothing about involvement, India's involvement in the resolution of the Y2K crisis is frankly staggering. I think that was a significant a moment for both India and how India was perceived in the world. This whole conversation about India being a superpower, IT superpower, uh, all happened on the back of Y2K. So while I uh, agree with most people when they say that we have not really made advancements in moving up the technology value chain, this was a significant uh, you know, intervention by India in responding to a problem that the world faced in, in the run-up to Y2K and still does. Uh, that is why you see the bottom lines of 
companies like Infosys and TCS being lined up uh, over the course of the pandemic. I mean, they've recorded terrible profits uh, on a quarterly basis over the course of the last one year or so. And that's because much of the digital infrastructure that uh, is essential to enterprise uh, running and management in, in the world today is still sort of run on a pretty obsolete code. And we still need those companies. Uh, and those companies, I think, are doing their best in their defense to innovate and try to move up the value chain. But it cannot happen except through manufacturing advancements. I think what we also try to sell ourselves is this narrative that uh, companies like Infosys and TCS are here to stay forever. And India can be the services-led economy and does not really need to focus beyond the point on manufacturing. I think what has happened with China leaving us far behind in the dust is this acknowledgement that you also need to uh, place emphasis on your manufacturing sectors, especially manufacturing of certain strategically relevant sectors, such as semiconductors, biotechnology, or what you will, and increasingly on hardware and software related advancements leading to machine learning and artificial intelligence. Unless we are able to sort of build on these manufacturing abilities, it is unlikely that we are able to move up the value chain. I hope it happens, but this is a sort of, I think it's an ongoing conversation that will many, take many, many years for us to resolve. And some of these conversations may not be a purely domestic one, whether India is able to sort of advance with respect to semiconductor manufacturing, etc., is as much a political question as it is um, uh, you know, an economic or a technological one. So the the same thesis that I started out with the book, which is that politi- politics essentially uh, is a crucial determinant of the way in which India embraces or adopts or rejects technology is likely to be true for the future as well. Yeah, yeah. Surely if we wanted to move up in the value chain in services, we would need a whole new ecosystem, not only for technical education, but also for preventing what is often called brain drain out of out of technological education and i i don't see uh, you know apart from like i see what's happening in education policy is more of a more of a an emphasis on vocational training rather than so that that seems like uh, aspiring to the lower ends of the value chain actually and not even focusing that much on manufacturing right i i think yeah I, I, you know this this too, you know, you could draw a historical analogy to it, which is our emphasis on IITs and not on ITIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had the ITIs, you've had national conversation, for lack of a better term, is still focused on the IITs. They have a naturally a pride of place in Indian society, given, you know, it's so difficult to get into IITs and the prospects that are, and 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 the fact that it is today possible to, you know, come from a very disadvantaged section of Indian society and still make it to the IITs. Of course, how you sort of deal with your time in IIT is a different question altogether, but it's still possible to access these institutions despite all the inequalities uh, of uh, education in India. So they are treated, uh, they are placed on a pedestal, but their emphasis have come, unfortunately, at the cost of vocational training that's needed to build up, uh, uh, you know, certain important skills. So I think in the initial years of Modi, you had the prime minister talking about the fact that, you know, an automobile engineer graduates out of an engineering institution, but does not have any cars to tinker around with. So he was saying the right things, but I'm not really sure whether uh, this government too is sort of, um, I mean, I'm not an expert on education policy, so maybe the NEP will change things. But the fact is that every government since Nehru has sort of 
uh, has had its attention, you know, deflected towards these premier institutions setting up IITs and AIMS, all Indian institutes uh, of medical science in you know different states. These sort of prestige projects, as opposed to building skills that may help us uh, in in sort of building manufacturing capabilities. Yeah, yeah, and this is my final question. So. You've consulted a wide variety of sources, I think, a bunch of um, letters, speeches. Did you have any trouble accessing them? Where uh, did you spend most of your time reading, looking for stuff? Yeah, I mean, I have not used a single Indian archive, as in like an archive located in India for the research. I There was a set of personal papers that I wanted to access from uh, the Nehru Memorial Library for the research. Unfortunately, you know, at the time that I wanted to access those personal papers, they had not been catalogued and there was some issue between, uh, you know, the agreement had not been signed between the person who contributed the papers and the library itself. So I could not access it. But beyond that, and, and other things uh, such as uh, Nehru's private, uh, Nehru's correspondence has entirely been digitized. So I was certainly aided by the fact that a lot of the information that traditionally used to be based in archives had been digitized, but I was greatly aided by the fact that I was in the US at the time and could have access to records that could possibly, I mean, I would be very surprised if even Indian archives had uh, certain records of government committee reports that were available in US libraries, especially the Van Pelt Library, which is a library of record for South Asia um, in uh, UPEC. So um, I had absolutely no more difficulties uh, accessing those records by virtue of the fact that the university that I'm enrolled in had access to this interlibrary learning service. So archives were not particularly inaccessible. Um, it helped, but the I mean, uh, unfortunately, it helped uh, that I was based in the US and um, could access these resources in a way that would have been difficult, ironically, for somebody who would be based full-time in India or affiliated exclusively to an Indian institution. All right. Uh, well, this has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Is there anything else you want to add about the book or the topic? Yeah, I mean, in addition to encouraging those listeners of yours who haven't read the book to buy it and read it, <laughs> you know, also to, um, I think uh, there is a sense of here and now that characterizes our response to technology policies and new technologies. And the younger generation in India is naturally a consumer of new technologies and a critic of them at the same time. We are bombarded by information that tells us what to think about a new technology and what not, and what not to think about that technology. And I think it is important to place some of these debates in context. There may not be any perfect analogy to characterize you know, our response to drones or machine learning or anything or cryptocurrency. We, we may not have the tools necessary to come at a fully informed decision. But I think as students of technology policy, especially lawyers, I think we have to be we have to be responsive to factors that have traditionally influenced our approach to technology. I think some of these reasons are rooted definitely in the Indian economy. Some of this is without doubt a factor of politics and culture. And I think lawyers have to go beyond reading 
what a policy says or what a regulation says in black letters and to understand what might be some of the motivations good and bad of those technologies and where possible some of this is in my book but hardly you know it hardly scratches the surface of technology debates that have characterized the evolution of india from 1947 to the current moment so they should certainly make an active attempt to find out uh, how some of these debates have been viewed in the past who have been the important players how have industry groups uh, responded to the adoption of new technologies and in particular responded to the entry of foreign competitors i think these are these are things that have uh, some answers in history and i think we should be looking to those debates for some guidance at least great uh, thanks so much arun for your time today thanks for coming to the podcast no no thanks for having me